invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. We'll finish out this chapter this morning as we look at what it means to find rest in Christ. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll see that trusting in Jesus is the only way to find true rest. Trusting in Jesus is the only way to find true rest. I'll begin reading in Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, if you travel at all or see signs, if you've been out west, you may know that what happens in Vegas does what? Stays in Vegas. See, you know. So there are certain cities and cultures, even within our, uh, our communities and culture, that kind of stand out for maybe the level of vice that you encounter there. That's why we say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Whether it should or not, that's what's supposed to happen. Or maybe a, a Mardi Gras in New Orleans comes to mind. We aren't the first culture where there are kind of uh, party cities. There were party cities in the first century, too, and we have a couple of them listed here along with one really old city. And so we're going to travel, as we have done before, a little bit throughout Israel here. So you see in the map, you've got the Sea of Galilee, and then the bottom, you've got the Dead Sea. Now, one city that we read about here is one that we find primarily in the Old Testament because it's destroyed, and that's the city of Sodom. So if you see the Dead Sea, you kind of see the peninsula sticking out here. We're going to zoom in there just a little bit, and you see where we think the likely location of Sodom was. Sodom is famous for being recorded in Genesis 18 and 19. In Genesis 19, God destroyed Sodom because of the level of sinfulness there. We see this in the life of Abraham and then his nephew Lot. That's not the only city we find here. We find a couple of other cities. We're going to travel back north, and if you look right at the top of this map, so go above the Sea of Galilee, keep traveling along the coast there, and you see the city of Tyre there right along the coast. Now, Tyre is kind of one of twin cities, coastal cities, Tyre and Sidon. We're going to zoom in and up a little bit here, so you see Tyre there. Now, Tyre is a coastal city, but it's like James Island. It's actually a little city off of the, the coast And then you've got a little bit north, you've got Sidon, which would actually be on the coast. You've got these two cities as well. Now, they're a little less well-known, but also found throughout the Old Testament. And what you, where you find them typically is in the Old Testament prophets as they're preaching judgment on these cities for their level of sinfulness. So they say Tyre and Sidon will be judged by God because they're pretty renowned for the level of sinfulness that they have compared to other cities. 
Now, these are kind of three famously Old Testament cities, uh, Sodom, Tyre, Sidon. you got these three. But those aren't the only three towns we have here. We have three other towns. Now, these are much less well-known. We're going to zoom in on the Sea of Galilee here, and you see a number of towns here, but on the north side there, you see Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is kind of the, the central area where Jesus located his ministry, and then just to the east of Capernaum is, is Bethsaida. Now, from Bethsaida, you've got uh, three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, all come from Bethsaida, but Peter now has moved to Capernaum. We know that because that's where his mother-in-law's house was, and, and Jesus went there and healed her, and just north of there is Chorazin. Now, this is the only time that we find Chorazin in the Bible. This, and in, in the parallel passage in Luke uh, chapter 10, we find the town of Chorazin. But these three cities, they're much less well-known. They aren't, um, they aren't, uh, Louisiana, they aren't uh, New Orleans. Couldn't think, I was thinking Baton Rouge, but you know, that was the capital. But uh, New Orleans or Las Vegas. So they're just kind of ordinary towns. And yet Jesus says these kind of unremarkable towns will receive worse judgment than these very vivid, these very well-known, these very flagrantly party, sinful cities. He says, these three towns, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, will receive judgment that is worse than these other towns. And Jesus gives a promised warning to these cities in verses 20 to 24. Well, much of Jesus' ministry is taking place around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. And it's here we're introduced to the key idea in this paragraph, Jesus' mighty works. So Jesus denounces these towns. This word denounce is the same word that we see in Matthew 5, verse 11, when Jesus says that people will revile us for following Jesus. In other words, there's this strong condemnation of these places. We see Jesus' mighty works appear three times in verse 20, verse 21, and then again in verse 22. Well, one thing we know about Jesus is that we only know a little bit of all that he does. He does many mighty works, and he only, the gospel writers only record a few of them. So we see him active in Chorazin, and then Mark 8 tells us that he's in Bethsaida, and he heals a blind man there. And also one of his most remarkable miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, takes place at Bethsaida. So it's a remarkable story. Well, in Capernaum, Jesus heals the centurion's sick servant. Peter's mother-in-law, and it's also the story where you remember where the, the, the people ripped the roof off of, of the house and then let the paralyzed man down. That happens in Capernaum. Well, these are just a few of many stories that, that happen in these towns. Jesus is there preaching the gospel, doing many mighty miracles, and we know that some respond because some of the disciples are from these towns, but many people harden their hearts to his message. So Jesus pronounces this warning because people didn't repent. So lest there be any misunderstanding about what it is that makes these cities receive this warning, verse 20 makes it clear because they did not repent. Well, in verse 21, Jesus adds this note that's, that's pretty strong. He says, now these other really, really, really bad cities, if they had seen me do everything that you have seen me do, they would have repented, but they didn't. Jesus didn't do these miracles in Tyre and Sidon. He did them in Capernaum. So because these cities have received a clearer revelation of the identity of Jesus and of his power, therefore, they will receive greater condemnation. Verse 24, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And as I was reading and studying this this week, there were four words, kind of two themes that just rang in my ears, more tolerable and more bearable. 
It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for these cities. Now, I have to admit, there's a part of me that wonders, if Jesus knew that these cities would repent, why didn't he go and do these miracles there? Why did he do them in, in these towns? He went to places that wouldn't repent, and he seems to have skipped the cities that would have repented. It's kind of the opposite of what it seems like he should have done. Surprising and a little bit troubling. We'll explore this question again in a few minutes, but let's look at the lack of repentance we see in these three cities. Are these cities the worst, worst cities in terms of their response to Jesus? Well, certainly not. The most active opposition that Jesus receives is in the south. So if, if you remember that map, you've got the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south, and just to the west of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem, Judea. That's where the people most actively opposed Jesus. Yet Jesus says that these cities here in the north, they are also responsible and will receive strong judgment. They're not flagrantly sinful like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. They're not actively opposing Jesus like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Yet God will judge these cities, not because of a, a subjective sense of how wicked they are, or how sinful they are, but because of how they respond or fail to respond to Jesus. You see, the Jewish leaders in the south actively resist Jesus. They, they do everything they can to try to put him to death. Well, how is it that the Jews in the north respond to Jesus? You might call it casual interest. Like, they're there to see, they're there to participate at some level, to observe what he's doing. Crowds follow him, but also with indifference. The cities fail to respond to his message. But ironically, what we think of as neutral, casual interest, indifference, Jesus says is anything but neutral. You see, a casual response receives a message of strong judgment. Jesus is not a savior of half measures. To follow Jesus, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. You see, to follow Jesus is to passionately and wholeheartedly embrace the whole Christ and the whole gospel. In other words, it's, it's not enough to lean casually into positive aspects of the gospel. A quick ticket to heaven. Do anything we can to avoid hell. Some set of blessings, good things that we want God to give us through Jesus. We must also embrace with that the cost of discipleship. What Jesus says is leaving all for the sake of following him. Rejecting life in this world as a source of joy. You see, the crazy thing about following Jesus is there is no neutral response to the gospel. To observe Jesus, to see what Jesus can do, to like certain aspects of Jesus, but not embrace those, is to reject the sum of what Jesus is, a Savior for desperate people who have no hope apart from Christ. There is no neutral response to drowning. There is no neutral response to, 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 to impending judgment. So this moves us from promised warning to some good news, promise of rest in verses 25 to 30. In verse 25... We read it quickly, and so it may have passed you by, but Jesus says something that's pretty troubling. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. And we think Jesus probably isn't talking literally about little children. He's talking about essentially people that know a lot and people that don't know a lot. Well, the first thing, if you're reading along and thinking at all that's surprising and troubling here, 
is that the Father hides the truth from some people. Jesus uses a twofold title for God. He calls him Father, indicating his family relationship to him as a son. He calls him Lord of heaven and earth, indicating that God rules all creation. So Jesus emphasizes his personal relationship with the Father, as well as the idea that the Father rules everything. And this good Father, who rules everything, hides the truth from some. But that's not the only surprising thing. Not only does God hide the truth from some, secondly, Jesus thanks him for this. This, to me, is even more surprising. And then there's a third surprise. Not only does Jesus thank the Father for this, he delights in it, and in verse 26, he calls it grace. For such was your gracious will. Well, if this does not start turning your head or trouble you a little bit, you aren't thinking hard enough. First, God hides the truth. Secondly, Jesus thanks him for it. And thirdly, Jesus calls this grace. This doesn't sound like grace to me. Well, the clear teaching of Scripture is that the Father hides the truth and the Father reveals the truth. Well, then how is it that God reveals the truth? Look at verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All right, so the ones who truly see God are the ones to whom Jesus chooses to reveal God. Well, what's going on here? I think verses 28 and 29 will help us out a little bit here. Let's go there. Verse 28. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So who is it that Jesus invites to come? All. Everyone who is weary. So the good news is that Jesus came to give rest to weary sinners, and this is a message for all people at all times. What's the nature of life in a fallen world, isn't it? It's it's the nature of life to be weary. I mean, life has its ups and downs, but you know, and some of you know this a lot better than I do, the trajectory of life over time is to get wearier, more broken, more tired, and eventually we expire or die. It's toward aging and increased weariness. At the same time, though, there's something in all of us that resists admitting our frailty. And maybe you haven't had this experience yet, maybe you've had a mom or dad, or maybe you have had this experience. The doctor says, you can't be driving anymore takes your keys. Is that good news or bad news? That's bad news. Now, it may be good news for everyone else out there on the road, but, but it's bad news for you. That, that's not something that anyone wants to hear because there's this loss of independence. It's hard to accept. Well, in the same way, we have kind of the same difficulty with admitting to Jesus that we can't cope with life on our own. Sometimes we try to cope by running to other substances to help. Maybe a drink to take the edge off to kind of relieve some of life burdens or some sort of uh, drug prescription or otherwise to help us cope with pain. But Jesus says that the solution in relieving our burdens doesn't lie in temporary relief but in a meaningful relationship with Jesus that brings true rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. But there's a part of us that struggles with this because of what we see in verse 29. So he says, come, I'll give you rest. And what do you have to do to get rest? You have to, verse 29, take my yoke upon you. And what's a yoke? A yoke's a harness that you put on an animal to help the animal carry more weight. Uh, It's it's kind of the same word that you would use to put on a backpack. It's like you're strapping yourself in, and you're you're going to carry a load. So Jesus says, come, get rest, but put on your load. So follow Jesus to get rest, but shoulder your load. So we're just supposed to trade one load for another. 
again, Jesus is kind of confusing here. I mean, we all live under the illusion that it's better to run our own lives according to our own plans and let someone else do it. We don't, someone, we, you know, if you can be self-employed, you don't have someone else telling you what to do, except all those people that now run your life. But what if in serving a master, we served a master who always lived and thought for and acted for our best interest? In other words, he bears the load of responsibility for things that we can't handle and burdens that we can't carry, yet he always acts in such a way that we grow and we flourish. Now, this is a little bit different. It's a little bit difficult for us maybe as, I don't know, somewhat, I'm not going to say we're all fully functioning adults, but somewhat functioning adults uh, for us to grasp. But let's imagine this. I got a three-year-old little guy. Now, he thinks the same thing that you think. He thinks it's, it's better for him to be the master of his own life. I mean, I got the same problem. You know, I, I, I'm an adult, I'm dad, and I think the same thing. Now, I can see it real easily in his life. Is it better? So let's say Joseph, Joseph wants to be his own master. Let's just say, all right, Joseph, you got it. You get your wish. You pay your own bills. You, you figure out a way to put a roof over your head. You fix your own meals. You figure out how to transport yourself around town. You figure out who's good and who's bad, who to protect yourself from, who's safe, who's not. I mean, if you're three years old, this would break you down functionally within a matter of minutes. Like, you're not equipped to handle all that. I mean, is it better for Joseph to have some other master in his life looking out for him, watching out for his best interest, acting, carrying loads, carrying burdens in a way that he can't? Now, this does mean a set of things for him. This does mean that at some level, when we fix a meal, we expect him to eat that meal. And he's not going to go out and fix his own meal. He's got, to eat, he's got the burden of eating the meal that, you know, what everyone else eats. Or this means that when we go somewhere, it's like, dude, you come along. You know, you don't decide you're going. Now, you may think you decide you're going somewhere else, but no, we all go together. Is it better for that three-year-old little guy to be acting as his own master, carrying all of his own burdens? Or is it better for someone benevolent, someone loving, someone looking out for him, a father in heaven maybe, looking out for him and helping him shoulder that burden? What we can all see as a three-year-old, they're not designed to, to run their own life. They need another master. We call them parents, but you know, I know you guys, you guys are teenagers. You're like, no, it's master server. That's the way it works in my house. But I'm just saying that God designed us to have someone bigger, more powerful, benevolent looking out for us. Is Joseph's life better if he's in charge or if someone else is in charge? Really, if someone else is in charge, as much as that may feel for him. If a more powerful, more competent person looks out for him, cares for him, loves him, carries his burden, serves him, and acts in his best interest, his life is a whole lot better than if he has to do that for himself. So what's the character of Christ? Verse 29. I am gentle and lowly in heart. What does it look like for Jesus to be gentle and humble? Well, let's look over at Matthew 18. If you have a Bible, go there. Just a few pages or a few scrolls of your finger down. And let's look at this together. Now, here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' disciples are arguing. It's an argument they've had over and over again. Who is going to be the greatest? Jesus, when we get there, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, do you ever find your kids having the same argument over and over again? That is exactly what's going on here. This isn't the only time this happens, and I'm sure Jesus is tempted to bring down the thunder on his disciples. But he calls instead, he calls over a child, and he uses a child to teach his disciples. He says, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So at some level, what's true in Joseph's life is that he unconsciously knows that it's better for someone else to be looking out for him. Well, now look at Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The gentleness of Jesus means that Jesus cares for us like our heavenly Father cares for his children. That kind of care means that there's not one person under the care of God that escapes his notice. If there's a field full of a hundred sheep and one goes missing, he goes and he pursues that lost sheep, chases him down. And when he finds that sheep who has wandered off, the one who's been bad, then he has a party for that sheep that he found. You see, serving Jesus is serving a master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The irony is that when you choose the yoke of Christ, you also choose freedom. Serving the best master is the place that is the most truly free. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. He says, For you were called the freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So he's talking about freedom and service, and he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ironically, and this makes no sense to us, we find freedom in serving. Master, servant sounds bad, but true freedom is found in Christ as we love and serve one another. It's like this. Imagine that we sat here this morning and we had some sort of, I don't know, command, obey power. And, uh, and, and we commanded you, you must write a note to, and, and we chose a person, and you must tell them that you love them. Well, if you're being forced to do this, you're, if you're being compelled to do this, there's a part of you that, that resents this, isn't it? Being forced to do something against your will. But imagine instead that this morning, kind of of your own volition, someone popped into your mind. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your, your, your mom or your dad or someone. And you're like, man, I just, I just love and appreciate that person. And you wrote that same note out of, just delight in that relationship. So on the one hand, something that is a loathsome task, writing a note that tells someone how much you love and appreciate them, becomes, on the other hand, a source of joy and delight. Well, the act is the same, isn't it? Writing the note. What changes it? It's, it's kind of the foundational understanding of the relationship. You see, when the character of the person and the delight in that relationship become the motivating factors in the relationship, then serving becomes joy, not a burden. When love, not forced servitude, shapes the bond between two people, then bondage is freedom. All right, so some of you aren't going to connect one-to-one with this, but a lot of you will. One day you're single, then you say some vows, and then you're married. Well, another way of looking at those vows is that we call them sometimes the bonds of marriage. That's bondage. That, that's, that's a euphemism for bondage. You're now in bondage to a covenant relationship with someone else. Well, in this relationship, you, you can do one of two things. You can focus on the prison house that you're now in. 
You can't be talking to other men or women. You can't be flirting with other people. You can't be going out and having a good time. Or if you're a parent now, now you got, real, you got all kinds of bonds. you got all kinds of responsibilities. you got multiple people that, that you are covenanted to care for and look out for. You're in real bondage here. Or you can focus on the joy of that relationship. The opportunity to have a commitment in love like, like, like you can share with no one else. Or as a parent, you can look at those kids and be like, ah, what burdens? You can be... What gifts? I mean, the same relationships become an opportunity for forced service and bondage or joy and delight in the relationship. You see, there's freedom in Christ because the love that Christ offers is better than any other love. And it's an understanding of the nature of that love, an understanding of the nature of that relationship that we begin to understand the joy and delight that can be ours in following him. The security that we find in Christ is better than any other security. The place of safety that he offers is better than any, is safer than any other place. So if you're here imagining that you can find freedom and joy apart from Christ, it's a futile pursuit. That is the way of these cities, Chorus and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Ultimately, pursuing our own way will lead to the same thing that it leads to for them, to judgment. And on the day of judgment, we will fully meet the consequences for our sin. But those who embrace Christ and all that he is will find rest for their souls. So, will you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Maybe we've gotten so far away from it that you've forgotten about our other big question. What about a God who hides the truth from some and reveals it to others? This is the same guy that we just read in Matthew 18. Doesn't want one of these little ones to perish. How are we to reconcile these kind of two pictures that seem to conflict? Well, at some level, we're wrestling with a question the church has been wrestling with for 2,000 years. But we're going to give it a shot this morning. So what are some uh, conclusions? One is that God's ways are higher than our ways. I mean, apart from Jesus himself, there's no better thinker in the history of the church than the Apostle Paul. In Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, Paul wrestles through similar questions. He wrestles through God's choice in salvation. Romans 9, God will have mercy on whomever he wills. But then he also says salvation is for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10. Well, how do we reconcile these? Probably like Paul does at the end of Romans 11. How unsearchable are God's judgment and his ways past finding out? We, we really can't. At some level, we're trying to wrestle with something and reconcile something. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. God's got his ways, and they're higher than our ways. Maybe as you try to wrestle through this, maybe you could join Paul and read Romans 9, 10, and 11 this week. Secondly, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. So there's a lot we don't know, a lot that God is doing in the world that we can't see, but we do know this, that repentance and faith in Jesus are the only way to true life and true rest. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Thirdly, we also know that it's God's will that everyone who hears the gospel should come to him in faith. He wants people to believe. God will save anyone who comes to him, but it's our sin that naturally prevents us from coming to him. But God is patient that we might repent and believe, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Fourthly, we need God's grace for salvation. God is able to save anyone but he will save only those who come to him in faith. Apart from God's grace, we can't do this. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. 
And fifthly, finally, we must preach the gospel to all people so that they might believe. We come to questions like this. Christians are real, real, real good at debating things we don't know the answer to. But sometimes real bad at carrying out our very clear responsibilities. And the stakes are eternal. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Our job is to plant the seed, plant it faithfully, and plant it over and over again so that God will bring forth fruit. As we close this morning, let's look again at what Jesus promises to those who trust him. He says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is a gracious master who offers eternal rest to anyone who comes to him. He is the prince of peace, Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the great I am. He is the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He is the lion of Judah who conquers all his enemies, the redeemer of sinful men. He is the savior of rebel sinners. He is the bridegroom who will come to claim his bride. He is the best master who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the key to finding rest is to lean into the character of Jesus as it's revealed in his word. And if you lean in there, you will find rest for your soul. You're weary, worn out, tired. You can find your rest in Christ. So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk with him personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you that you are a gracious master. Serving, taking a yoke, sounds bad, but we know that in Christ it is a blessing, that in finding our freedom there that we, that we find true freedom. God, I pray for those here who are wrestling with your call in their life, God, that they would turn from their sin and they would trust you. God, all who come to you can find their rest in you. And so this morning... I pray that we would find our rest in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we respond to the word of God, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond in particular ways. I'll be here at the front if there's any way that we can pray with you or encourage you, uh, talk with you further about potentially church membership or baptism, any of those things, we'd be more than happy to do so. You know, we said that Jesus requires total commitment, and at some level we're going to sing a prayer to God, now take my life and let it be that it would be consecrated fully to him. Let's stand, please. We'll sing together. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless. Let them flow.
thank you for joining us for worship worship this morning. Uh, we would love to have you stay and join us for Sunday School. We have a number of classes available, including one that will meet here uh, in just about 15 minutes after we end here. But as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day.